Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I'm David Flint, and this is ADH-TV, and the program is Save the Nation. My guest today, and my very special guest, is Chris Merritt, whom I knew at uh, the UTS Law School and who graduated there with honours. And he's been a very prominent legal columnist, editor, among the top newspapers of Australia, the Financial Review and uh, now the Australian but he's also the vice president of a very important institution in our society, the Rule of Law Institute, which uh, is well worth looking at. Just go to Rule of uh, Law Institute, or is it Rule of Law? Rule of Law. Ruleoflaw.org.au. Now, Chris, before we get on to the principal issue, legal issue of these days, I'd like to ask you about what happened during COVID, because recently, uh, wearing another hat, that's Australians for Constitutional Monarchy, we were invited, uh, at our own encouragement, to see the Minister, the Assistant Minister for the Republic, Mr Thistlethwaite. And we made the point that we didn't think that the government's constitutional reform agenda was really that important, the voice and then later on the Republic. We argued that the really important issue which faced this country was the breakdown of checks and balances during COVID. And we thought that was absolutely appalling. And uh, it reflected badly even on colonial times. Mm. When we were a self-government colony, the, re the power to make regulations was done through the Executive Council where the governor would check on the process. Mm. And the process was very proper and very public. And then when the regulations were tabled in the Parliament, there was a, an understanding, and it was accepted almost universally, that both houses had the power to disallow. Both of those checks and balances in many ways have disappeared. The disallowance powers has been excluded by legislation in many important respects. Ministers have the power to make very powerful regulations, and we saw this in New South Wales, particularly. I remember when we we suddenly were advised and the minister one night signed uh, an order, which went to the Gazette, closing down the building industry 
for two weeks, cost one and a quarter billion, and the chief health officer said she didn't advise it. We still don't know where it all came from. Because is that your feeling that that was really the big <coughs> breakdown in constitutional government? Yeah, look, I couldn't agree more. Um, the, there's, there is a need for a royal commission the, into this. The, there was a Senate uh, inquiry that reported just before the, the last election, uh, and that inquiry was chaired by Katie Lay, now the um, finance minister, and she called for, or her committee called for a royal commission, and made the point in their report that uh, they could, the parliament was being denied information. That the government, using these powers under the, this is the federal government under the Biosecurity Act, could make any direction. The health minister could make any direction. And why is that significant? Because that act, the Biosecurity Act, is the reason that Scott Morrison, the former Prime Minister, had himself sworn in as uh, an additional health minister uh, because the Act empowers the the health minister to make any direction, anything. Um, It's without oversight from Parliament. Uh, Now, democratically, I I agree with you 100%. These um, statutes that vest lawmaking power in the executive, uh, i.e. a minister or officials, uh, turn back the clock hundreds of years to the days before responsible government where uh, uh, King Henry VIII, to use the classic example, um, was the beneficiary of a statute that empowered him to simply promulgate laws regardless, without any influence by... uh, parliamentary representatives. And that's that's the situation that we're slowly returning to. And it's not just the pandemic. You're seeing it in more modern legislation uh, where uh, governments dominate the, the, uh, the legislature and browbeat or encourage the legislature to approve um, statutes that effectively give governments the power to govern without interference by the parliament. I think it's very, very dangerous. Not enough people are aware of it. Um, it's very encouraging that uh, that uh, Senate committee I referred to, which was uh, led by a prominent member of the Labor Party, now a prominent member of the government, is aware of this stuff. Um, but a royal commission is the way to go. It's it, it's a, an issue that goes beyond uh, partisan politics, in my view. Uh, it was taken up um, by the Human Rights Commissioner, uh, Lorraine Finlay. She, uh, she's pointed to this concern as well. It just challenges the ability of the community to hold their governments to account, to ensure that if you're going to erode liberties... Um, with a law, the very least you can do is in, insist that that law, if it's just promulgated by a, an official or a minister, is disallowable, mm-hmm. which means Parliament should always have the right to say, well, look, this doesn't measure up, <clears throat> or even better, um, show me the, uh, for example, the uh, the medical advice that you've got that supports this uh, draconian 
erosion of liberty mm-hmm. um, and then the parliament will make a decision. And that should be made public, shouldn't it? It, it should. should be an explanatory memorandum going to the uh, Executive Council setting out the reasons for what is being proposed, if it's of significance. Uh, and I, I was looking, uh, looking at your site, the Rule of Law Institute site, and they quote Montesquieu, and I'd quote Acton, and that is that uh, power tends to corrupt, and absolute mm. power corrupts absolutely. The way we control that is through checks and balances. Mm. That's the only way you can do it. Mm. Checks and balances, that's so important. And you make that point, and we, it just disappeared. And the Senate itself, and legislative councils themselves, have passed legislation in which there's a provision saying this will not be disallowable. Yeah, I, I think it's a betrayal of uh, their role. Is it a breach of Section 61 of the Constitution, which says that the power, executive power is vested in the Queen, but exercisable by the Governor-General? Does that mean that anything important should go to the Executive Council? That's a very interesting argument. I'd like to see it argued out. Um, I think governments are... That's one of the big lessons that came out of the last couple of years Mm. during the pandemic, that we need to reassess the way these, uh, these rules and regulations... Uh, just separate it out from the legislature. Mm. That's where the, the legitimacy of these rules and regulations come from. Yes. And this brings us to the principal subject of our interview, and that is the National Anti-Corruption mm. Commission. And uh, I was looking at a piece by yours in The Australian, and you write about, again, about Henry VIII. Now, why Henry VIII? Well, it's, it's remarkable, what, 500 years after... Uh, Good King Henry passed into a better world. Um, his legacy lingers, lingers on, and it's a it's a terrible legacy. It's a legacy of tyranny, and parliaments or executive governments that embrace these sorts of ideas need to recognise exactly what they're doing. With the the um, the the National Anti Corruption Commission bill, um, if you move beyond. Um, uh, a principle um, uh, that might encourage people to oppose it entirely and say, well, we've got uh, laws for uh, unlawful conduct and we've got courts and we've got police to investigate matters. And um, the principle that used to prevail in this country is that you're free to do everything that's not forbidden by law, mm. um, which is a pretty standard historical approach to life, and that provides the basis for what we consider to be freedom under the law. The law tells you what you can't do, and you're free to do everything up to that point. Yes. Go beyond that point, yes. you're in trouble. And the corollary is that while we're free to do anything not forbidden by law, the executive under our system and the government are only entitled to do what is authorised by law. So yeah. they're in a different position. That's, that's supposed to be the difference, but they've beaten that down, haven't they? Well, this is uh, one of the, the main concerns with the, uh, the NAC bill, the Anti-Corruption Commission bill. Mm. If you look at the definition provision, most of it is uh, outlining specific circumstances where the new commission would be entitled to run investigations, and that includes hauling people before a public hearing. This is people who haven't been convicted of anything or even charged with anything. Uh, but there's a, the last 
provision in the, the definition, section 8, subsection 1E, I think is what it is. It gives the uh, commission an expanded jurisdiction mm. to uh, look at things, and this is outlined in the explanatory memorandum, that are not foreseen, that uh, uh, instances of corruption that are not covered by the definitions. Do you think corruption should only be that which is illegal? Yes, I do. I, 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 think, I agree with you. I, I think um, corruption is a vague term. It's a it's an umbrella term uh, in New South Wales, and this is a good example. And corruption in New South Wales can cover everything from uh, a public service disciplinary offence right through to extremely serious criminal matters that could land people in prison. And I think it's completely inappropriate to taint people with the brand of corruption, you are corrupt, mm. for matters that uh, would n never result in a criminal conviction. I think it's, it, it erodes the currency of yes. that declaration. Do, do you remember the live cattle ban case? Yeah. Which took about 10 years to come on and people had been ruined by the minister closing off all live cattle trade with Indonesia, including those with the the abattoirs we knew were good. Mm. We, we knew which abattoirs were questionable and maybe cruel, but we knew that there were some good ones. And he had two, two versions of the order. And the first version he adopted, that was to only restrict the export of live cattle to the bad ones or the questionable mm. abattoirs. But then he decided to impose one against all. And when that, after almost 10 years, came to court... The judge said this was misfeasance in public office. He hadn't checked, it, checked uh, his legal position carefully. And I think there's been a lot of misfeasance in public office mm. during COVID. But uh, what I would suggest is that uh, serious misfeasance in public office should be a criminal offence. Mm. After the live cattle ban, it's the Commonwealth that's going to pay, the taxpayers going to pay billions of dollars mm. to the people who are damaged. The minister who did it is now enjoying his retirement. He will not have to do anything. The politicians who did it, they won't suffer anything. I think if there should be a criminal offence of serious misfeasance in public office where you don't check whether you have the power to do what is authorised under legislation, you just go ahead recklessly and indifferently as to whether or not you have the power. This happened, I think, mm. during COVID. For example, I think the... The rules that were made about leaving Australia or coming back into Australia oh. is a classical example of overreach because his power, the power of the minister, when I looked at the Act, and it seemed to be the whole reason for the power was to stop us spreading the disease to friendly countries mm. or bringing the disease in. Mm. And you could take precautions against that. There was no reason to have a blanket ban. And I had some people who came to see me, they talked to me, they wanted to go back and see relatives in, in Holland and they weren't allowed to. Politicians could go overseas, yeah. but, but they weren't allowed to go and see their dying relatives in Holland and there were people who couldn't come into Australia. And I, I thought that was serious misfeasance in public office. Well, look, I, I have to agree with you. I think that the damage done by uh, just those border closures uh, is just absolutely immense. Lorraine Finlay has pointed out that the 
there was a time when 6,000 Australians were stranded in India and were told that if you attempt to come back to your country, i.e. Australia, you could be jailed for years and fined, I think it was $6,000. So they were stuck there in the middle of a pandemic. That that strikes me as completely improper. Yes. I'm tempted by the idea that you're like, you can come back to your own country. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's not just the the international borders, but the the state border closures as mm. well. I mean, it, there's a lot of things that are, were highlighted during the, the pandemic that need to be addressed. And the, the, uh, the inability of ordinary people to travel to funerals and weddings mm. across state borders because some state premier uh, took it into his mind that he ran an independent country. and It was sadistic, wasn't it, it really? Was. And, and talking about sadism, getting back to anti-corruption, do you remember someone saying that appearing before, appearing as a council assisting in one of these ICAC cases is akin to, analogous to, tearing the wings off butterflies. Yes, I do, I do. That was um, the former Commissioner Megan Latham. Um, very, she, she was actually quite accurate in, um, in that assessment because I, I think I agree with her. That's exactly the sort of um, tribunal that... Uh, we're looking at, uh, not just in New South Wales, but the, the Federal Commission is modelled in large parts, uh, on the worst parts, I, I would say, of the New South Wales Commission without um, copying some of the beneficial mm. parts of that, that commission. And there are beneficial mm. parts in the, the New South Wales Commission. But p- people who appear um, before these tribunals, and I'm thinking about public hearings... They're stripped of all the procedural rights and protections that they would get in a normal court of law. Uh, what that means is that we're establishing, and the Federal Commission will uh, accelerate this process, we're establishing parallel systems of what I would describe as rough justice. The, the, will they be kangaroo courts? I think that will depend on how it's a, applied by the, the Commissioner, but... Uh, I think for a period um, in New South Wales, I think that was an accurate description mm. of uh, the New South Wales mm. Commission. Laverty Berrier, who was Stalin's secret police boss, a completely evil man, famously said, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. <laughs> and I think in some ways that's what happened in ICAP because when I look down the list of people mm. who appeared and were treated and declared corrupt... Yeah. Uh, for example, uh, uh, Michael Gallagher, the, Gallagher, the yes. minister, I mean, they ruined him yeah, without was, any justification. Without any substance at all. In fact, um, there's a string of people who've uh, suffered. Hmm. The, the, the process is the, is the penalty and public hearings are the worst part of the process. Yes. You made the very important point, did you not, about the public hearings in New South Wales that you have to you have to come to a conclusion that the person is corrupt before you have the public hearing. That's it. The, the, the statute's quite clear on that. Uh, the commissioner and at least one, the chief commissioner and at least one other commissioner, must come to the to the must conclude after a preliminary investigation 
that there is corruption that needs to be exposed mm. in a public hearing. So that's why they have a public hearing. They've already decided that there's corruption. So it, it's it's a classic show trial. Yes. It's it, like the Margaret Cunneen case, which had nothing to do with anything public. Mm. Yeah. The, look, the Cunneen, the, the, the pursuit of, of uh, Margaret Cunneen... Um, shows why there needs to be internal checks, not just on the New South Wales Commission, but in the the National Commission. Because there was dissent within ICAC over whether the allegation against Canine, which was baseless, whether even that allegation fell within its jurisdiction. And I think it was the enforcement director who gave uh, testimony at at a hearing in the New South Wales Parliament and made that clear that, in his view, it, it didn't. Now, the, the Court of Appeal in New South Wales and the High Court agreed with that assessment, but that didn't prevent a, commissioner run, a commission run by, effectively run by one person from expending a vast amount of taxpayers' money and imposing all sorts of procedural uh, burdens on Margaret Keneen uh, before she was able to win. Now, she won because she happened to be a silk... Now, ordinary people, ordinary public servants, and dare I say uh, backbench politicians, don't have the resources uh, or the knowledge to launch a similar sort of fight, which is why I think one of the big flaws with the National Commission is the absence of internal checks on the immense power that's going to be vested in the the commissioner. In New South Wales, they've recognised that. There's been 30 years of experience in New South Wales. That's why they subject the decision to make a public hearing to the requirement that that it must be supported by at least one other commissioner. Mm. That's not the case federally. I I don't think there's enough uh, checks on the power of the proposed commissioner in federally to to hold those things. There needs to be. And, And there's no reason... To hold public hearings, though, is there? Not in my view. I mean... The police don't. Hmm. Holding a public hearing uh, after there's been a, a private hearing, and, mm. and that's, what the, the, that's how the procedure will work with the National Commission. There must always be a private preliminary investigation, mm. and then they'll make a decision on whether they go on to a public hearing. Yes. The Americans, for example use the old English system, the grand jury, Mm. the grand jury of 23. So you have people, ordinary people, making the judgment on whether, on the evidence, this matter should go to public trial before a jury of 12 and a judge. But the important thing about the grand jury is that it's all secret. Mm. It's an offence to reveal anything that occurs in the grand jury. The Americans don't need... Mm. this sort of public investigation. There are criticisms made of the grand jury. I rather like the grand jury, but we don't have it in Australia. But the idea that there should be a hearing before you've actually decided to prosecute seems to me a reversal. But but after the Margaret Cunneen case, didn't Parliament... Uh, uh, change something and be yes, more protective? Did. Yes, they did. They shifted from uh, a one-commissioner model mm. to a three-commissioner model mm. uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, they they recognised there needed to be internal checks on the power of this institution. These are incredibly powerful institutions. They are not 
restricted by the checks on the incredibly powerful judiciary. The judiciary has had hundreds of years to evolve and there are procedural checks and remedies built in to the mainstream justice system. Mm. But as you know, as you know, it was the glorious in the glorious revolution Mm. the judges obtained tenure until Mm. then. They served at the pleasure of the king. Yes. And we, our judges now hold tenure, so that's a very important safeguard. It is a, an important safeguard. But the, the appeal mechanism as well, um, it's expensive and it's technical, but it's miles ahead of anything mm. that uh, exists in New South Wales mm. and in the proposed yes. federal scheme. D- didn't New South Wales reduce the amount of review after the Cunane case? Uh, I, ca- I can't recall it, that. There was something they did, I, I can't remember it exactly, but I, I wonder about the New South Wales Liberal governments since they created this. Mm. They've been a major victim. They've provided a number of victims of Mm. this and they haven't seen the good sense in making very significant changes to it. But it's also, with all of these disadvantages, with the string of people, the string of victims, innocent victims, with all of that... It's also a terribly inefficient model mm. because by the, time, by the time they find corruption and it eventually goes to the DPP and comes to trial, you've got, what, sometimes a decade or more. Um, so it, that's inefficient, isn't it? It's incredibly inefficient. The, the, um, the best example of that is what happened with uh, Eddie O'Bead and Ian MacDonald. Mm. Uh, ICAC in New South Wales likes to uh, brag about how... Uh, they, they got Eddie O'Bead. Well, did they really? Uh, they received a tip-off from a member of the public, investigated for a couple of years, uh, eventually, after public hearings, decided to hand over their information to the DPP. Because of the inconsistent methods used by ICAC, mm-hmm. the poor old prosecutors had to effectively start again and weed out all the material that had been obtained under these inconsistent coercive methods used by by ICAC took them four years to produce an indictment and another two years before the indictment was finalised. When Obeid and MacDonald were eventually convicted, it was over events that took place 14 years in the past. Now, my argument is that how do you avoid that? And I think the lesson is that as soon as ICAC and the National Commission should adopt this approach as well, as soon as one of these commissions, during their investigation, become aware that there's a, a, a likelihood of a criminal offence, they should be obliged to hand everything over to the, to the proper authorities, the DPP, and that's the end of their involvement. This is not radical. The, um, that's the model used by the coroner's court. So it preserves the, the rights of the person uh, under investigation but it also eliminates delays of the sort that we saw with Eddie O'Bead and Ian MacDonald. A coronial investigation is an executive matter? Or it's, is it, it's judicial, but it's judicial. they've got uh, coercive power. They're mm. able to... They, don't have, they go beyond the, the protections of the, uh, the adversarial system mm. in the, the mainstream justice system. Yes. I, I think that... Uh, People tend to see those public hearings as a court. I think the average person sees that 
as a judicial process, although it's not. It's just an mm. executive process and a completely unnecessary one. I think mm. you and I agree. Uh, whereas they don't do that in relation to a royal commission because royal commission, there's a, a long tradition of royal commissions. It's on a specific matter. Mm. And people know that a royal commission is not a judicial proceeding. And I think, I think any... Your average observer understands that and they appreciate that and they know that the public hearings mm. of a royal commission are not a trial. But they, the, the completely the opposite occurred in New South Wales, certainly with ICAC, with that parade of people going down and uh, even premiers resigning because they appeared before it and uh, mm. it was suggested that they were corrupt. Look, I, I couldn't agree more and I, I think the... Um the, these commissions have got a lot to answer for because they they ape the outward appearance of a court. Mm-hmm. Uh, they ape or they require counsel assisting to bow and adopt the mannerisms of uh, that they would adopt in a court. They're not a court, and they shouldn't be allowed to conduct themselves to give the the false impression to people that they are somehow worthy of the, the respect that mm. is earned and justified in the mainstream justice system. It's, uh, it's a completely separate system. And we, we, I think we, at our peril, we, we give too much respect to these things. Mm. They may as well... It's the equivalent of the police conducting an inquiry and opening up uh, their interview rooms to uh, television cameras and reporters... You'd never do that yes. because it would, for obvious reasons, nothing's proved. It's just a, an investigation. Uh, to extend the, the, uh, the simile, it'd be equivalent to police standing up and going out into the street and making a declaration after an investigation that someone's um, a criminal and now we're going to give them a, a fair trial in the justice system. That's the way the ICAC system works. They make public reports that someone's corrupt, and then you're supposed to go off and get a, a fair yes. trial. Good luck. So, so what's being proposed is something which will create victims, which will be terribly unfair, which will destroy lives, and which is completely inefficient. That, that, that is the model which is being proposed. And we have politicians pushing this. Mm. I think some of these politicians should really do one of your courses at the Rule of Law <laughs> Institute, shouldn't they? Yes, look, there's a... I hate to say it, but I, I suspect um, that there's a, a, a deep authoritarian vein that runs through some parts of society, and you can see this in the, the way uh, these commissions uh, draw support uh, they, there's no doubt when, when they... Um, nothing's up for debate. They make their decisions, mm. public hearings. They've already concluded that someone's uh, corrupt. Otherwise, they wouldn't hold a public hearing. So it's basically a show trial. It's good fodder for the media. Uh, some of... I regret to say that uh, some of the media go along with this, and I think they do their, their readers a disservice because they give the impression that these people are uh, guilty of misconduct before it's even been tested in the proper forum, an adversarial forum, where people are in, given the right to defend themselves and put their case. You don't get that in, in ICAC. A similar thing happened didn't it, during COVID. The mainstream media tended to go along 
mm. with uh, quite authoritarian decisions being taken by government mm. and with the weakness of the federal government, the federal government then underwrote whatever foolish decisions or improper decisions were taken at the state level. Yeah. So we, we got a really bad situation there. This is the danger, isn't it, if uh, this legislation goes through without serious changes. But you're not... You're concerned about corruption. You want corruption stamped out, as we all should. Uh, and uh, sometimes I, uh, I won't mention the cases here because I don't want a defamation writ. There are some matters in New South Wales which I wonder why these matters weren't taken up by ICAC, but I won't mention what they were because we'll be in trouble. Mm. Look, the, I take the view that um, we've got a very good uh, justice system um, we've got the, the structure in place to make laws democratically. We've got the structure in place to hold people to account when they cross the line and break the law. And I, for the life of me, I can't see why, if there's a concern about a form of misconduct that is not being addressed by the system, why our politicians can't simply pass a law mm. or, more effectively, beef up the funding of the police. The, the National Anti-Corruption Commission, I think its four-year budget is $260 million. I think the AFP could benefit from a little bit of that uh, to enforce real laws, not simply uh, create publicity. And that, that's all this commission will do. It won't be able to hold anyone to account or punish anyone. It'll simply create publicity. I must admit, I thought along similar lines, why not just have a unit in the federal police of specialists in in federal matters, in government matters, to handle this. And this is, you're right, this is what this should be. Yeah. If they want to establish a commission, it should be. But I think your idea that once they, once they sense that they've come to a, a criminal offence, which is the only thing they should be concerned mm. with, and they should then hand it over to the Director of Public Prosecutions for, for the efficient handling mm. of that, the That would uh, integrate this new institution into the mainstream justice system and it would could be very beneficial. But to set it up as a separate parallel system with only a passing concern about whether or not this should go to, to the mainstream prosecutors and the courts, I think it's a complete waste mm. of an opportunity. And I'm fascinated that you agree that... Uh, uh, misfeasance in public office, which is the classy lawyer's name mm. for making regulations, if you have the power to make regulations, which are greater than the Act allows, mm. which I'm sure happened all the time during COVID. And I think, I, I think it would be very good if that were a criminal offence, which could be seen as a form of corruption. Well, uh, corruption in the sense of power and well, the corruption of power. Well, I think it would focus a few minds. Mm. Um, misconduct in public office has uh, been in the headlines quite a lot of recent years because of um, Ian MacDonald and Eddie Abid, quite frankly. Mm. But the the law on misconduct in public office has been was a mess before the, these two, two people appeared before the courts. But the New South Wales Court of Appeal, a special, I think it was a seven... It might have been a five-court bench, um, unanimously set down the rules on misconduct in public office. And uh, misfeasance in public office, I think there's a, there's a case. Mm. It, what we're, the problem is that 
the, 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 the legislature and the community that votes for the legislature, we've been, uh, we're sitting back while power is being drained away into the arms of uh, uh, officials who shouldn't have it. Mm-hmm. They should, responsible governments should always uh, work on the principle that the executive and its officials must be held accountable to the legislature and through them to the community. Anything less than that, once you throw that principle away, we're no longer a democracy. The High Court has found an implied uh, principle in the Constitution, that is freedom of political communication. I would think that there are other implications in the Constitution when that Constitution was made. And I would think that the community, the people who are sovereign in our system, they they assumed, everybody assumed, it was a basic principle of justice, the presumption of innocence. Mm. And this 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 model yes. grossly offends the presumption of innocence. A- absolutely. It, it's you've just got to look at the the respect for the presumption of innocence mm. in the, the mainstream justice system. The mm. police respect it. Of all people, you'd expect the police not to respect it because mm. they're the ones that run the investigation and inform a view that there's wrongdoing. But they respect it. The prosecutors definitely, and so does the court. But with the the anti-corruption commission model, or as it's evolved in this country, not elsewhere, I should point out, um, it erodes it. Um, On on that point, it's it's worth considering this. When when ICAC was established, a lot of people uh, asserted that it was simply based on what they do in Hong Kong, which is completely wrong. The Hong Kong ICAC, this is before the communists took charge over there, the Hong Kong ICAC was an integrated part of the justice system. It investigated, prepared a brief of evidence and provided that to the prosecutors. It didn't go in for all these So it was part of what we would call the DPP. Yes, exactly. So all we did was borrow the name. (laughs) We borrowed the name and corrupted the model. Mm. Now, the the South Australians in very... uh, promptly saw that there was a problem here and the South Australians have returned their model, which was a bit like New South Wales. They've returned it closer to an orthodox part of the justice Mm. system like the Hong Kong model. Uh, There was an excellent piece by three King's Council, mm. as they now are, in the Australian. Did you notice that? I did. I can't remember their names. I did. That was very good. It was spot on. Um, and there was good cause for that. Mm. These commissions uh, are causing people to kill themselves. Mm. Incidentally, I should mention before we wind up that uh, all of your comments, all of your comments can be read on the Rule of Law Institute. I only realised mm-hmm. that yesterday when I was looking at the uh, that... Uh, that excellent site, and mm. if people want to read, any viewers want to read what uh, has been written, uh, very important writings by Chris Merritt on ICAC and on this National Anti-Corruption Commission, you, you can just go to the Rule of Law Institute and there they are, which is very useful. Mm. I think you're doing time. wonderful work there, incidentally. It's a very important part of uh, society. Yeah, I agree. Uh, somebody needs to... Um, point out these principles which are the basis of not just law but liberty. Mm. And I think it's wonderful too that you make uh, yourselves available educationally because children want to learn more than gender dysphoria 
and all of the latest fads uh, mm. worrying about uh, climate change and so on, they should also be worrying about and knowing about the essential parts of our society. Do you, do you think there's an argument that the judicial power in Australia uh, uh, would not allow the, the exercise of the judicial power, that the, the provisions in the Constitution concerning the separation of powers may well cause problems in relation to the government if they're not more careful in relation to the legislation? That's a very good argument. Mm. I um, would argue that this is exercising, this purports to exercise the judicial power. You might remember some of the industrial commissions, there's yeah. the famous Boilermakers case and so on, yeah. where they went, they came out and it was then realised that they were exercising judicial power, but they weren't courts. Look, the... the um the long-term argument in defence of these things is that, oh, look, we're not a court, we don't impose penalties. But uh, a couple of years ago, um, one of the uh, uh, former DPPs in New South Wales, I can't forget his name now, gave evidence to a New South Wales parliamentary inquiry and he let the cat out of the bag and mm. he said, uh, look, uh, ICAC, of course it imposes penalties. It, it, it just... He didn't say this, but the penalty is a destruction of someone's reputation. Yes. Murray Keir, for example. Was, yeah, Murray, Murray Keir is a good example. Yes. Mike Gallagher, uh, uh, Sharif Kazal. I mean, there's a number of people who have been trashed um, by the New South Wales Commission who have done nothing wrong. At law, they're innocent and they deserve to have their presumption of innocence respected. But they've already been through these proceedings, which remain online forever. Mm. Now, this bill, this bill will go to a committee, I assume, will it? And yes, uh, there's a parliamentary inquiry that uh, the submissions close in uh, seven days. Seven days? Seven days, on the 14th. You no doubt have put in, a, yeah. or about to put in, um, a We're about submission. to. Um, but Seven days is ridiculous. It is. It's it's completely ridiculous. That that's that's an affront Look to at, the people of Australia. I think it tells me that it's not a serious attempt to examine how this bill could be approved. Mm. I think it's too late to say well this this bill shouldn't go ahead, but at the very least, the Parliament should not close its eyes to ways in which this scheme can be improved or flaws can be addressed. And seven days, I don't think is enough. Well, Chris, I think you're doing a wonderful job there and generally in relation to the rule of law and informing the Australian people about the law. And as I say, go to the to ruleoflaw.org.au and you can read all of Chris's very important pieces and no doubt we'll be able to read the submission there. And people should put in brief submissions anyway. Mm. saying that they they should just at least say, look, we're very worried about this. Just let them know that uh, there is concern. Well, uh, Chris Merritt, thank you very much for coming along, spending your valuable time in a, an area of Sydney where apparently you once lived. I did. And uh, it's good of you to do that. Uh, and uh, this is Save the Nation on ADH-TV. I'm David Flint, and until next time.